Welcome back, guys. DGS 404. We have attorney Brad Young with us again. I think Brad was just on yesterday. Uh, hey, Brad, did you have a mediation before this? Uh, yeah, I was in court until about uh, 10 minutes ago. Okay, good. Because when I asked Andrew if he booked you, he said uh, yes, but he has a very important meditation right before that appearance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, basically, I was contemplating my navel and billing the client. That's what I was doing. I was in the middle of saying it, and I was like, Brad is a meditation, which is cool. I didn't think he like meditation. Oh, you know what? I bet it said mediation, and I misread it. Oh, that's funny. Uh, okay, so we talked to Chet about an hour ago about uh, the Trump stuff and uh, his attorney not being able to introduce documents, yada, yada. I wanted you to talk about the Uvalde uh, DOJ report. I've been seeing it on television all day. I have not taken time to, to sit down and watch or read anything. So uh, what you're going to tell us is the first thing I've really heard about it. What did the DOJ find? Well, it was a it was a sprawling report, over 500 pages long, Dave. And basically the most significant failure that I noticed as I was reading through the report is that responding officers really failed uh, because they should have immediately recognized the incident as an active shooter situation, but they didn't. When they initially arrived on the scene, even though shots had been fired, they treated it like a hostage situation as opposed to an active shooter. And there was a 77-minute delay from the time that the shooting began until uh, the shooter was, uh, was eliminated. And so think about it, 77 minutes. And there were countless deaths during that time. Uh, and all of those could have been potentially avoided had the officers really just followed their training treated it as an active shooter situation instead of a uh, hostage negotiation situation and just gone in and taken out the shooter. So, Brad, I'm going to guess that in a situation like this, the worst thing that can happen to these police officers would be losing their job, losing their status, their respect. No one's getting charged with a crime. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. And and not only that, Dave, the other thing that I was really looking for as I was reading through this report today was a section dealing with recommendations for punitive steps. There was nothing in this report about punishing anybody in, in individual, punishing any particular officers or offices. Uh, there was very limited, what I will call introspection into uh, the, the federal forces actions. It was really just outlining the failures of the state, the Texas and the local police officers, but there were no recommendations for any punitive actions against those officers. Brad, do you know if, if this finding, this report means anything for potential civil litigation? Like, can anybody say, see, it was proven that you were incompetent or that you didn't do your job, therefore you are liable for X? You know, that's a great question, uh, Wheels, and that's exactly what I was looking for also as I was reading through this report. And the details regarding, uh, and there are many things that would that would point towards what I would call um, uh, legal malpractice, or not legal malpractice, but police officer malpractice. For example, there were several sections detailing how the officers had been trained in these exact situations on moving forward towards the shooter and to eliminate the threat situation. And they failed to do that. So, yeah, this, this report could be cited as an exhibit uh, demonstrating how the police officers failed to respond to their own training. 
that that they were trained on how to do this properly, but failed to do that. So yes, Kevin, I do think that that the information in this, if it cannot be used specifically as an exhibit, I think it also then would be used kind of like a roadmap for plaintiffs' attorneys to to lay out how both the city and the state and the local officials, whether that's school officials or police officials, simply drop the ball. And it's also a classic example of what's called cascade failure, where there were multiple failures by multiple agencies. And had any one of those failures been rectified, uh, I'm not going to say the situation would not have occurred, but it would have been much, much less deadly. So, Brad, I, I hold first responders and military in such a high esteem. I hate to use the word cowardly uh, about anyone in uniform, but uh, I'm going to ask you, having looked at the report, does it seem to be uh, cowardice on the part of the police officers to wait 77 minutes, incompetence, or just a good mix of both? Boy, uh, cowardly is a state of mind, Dave, as you well know, and it's really it's extremely difficult to ascertain a person's state of mind. Uh, what I would say is, and I, and I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't throw bricks in these kind of situations. So what I would say is, it's really an example of uh, of analysis paralysis, of everyone standing around trying to analyze the situation instead of doing something about the most obvious situation in the room, which is somebody has a gun and they're killing children. I mean, that's really all the analysis that needed to be done here. And yet uh, there, were, there, were, uh, there was analysis of the audio from both body cameras and the cameras and microphones in the hallways. And people were standing around analyzing the various situations. Well, it could be this or it could be that. Or wait, we need to wait for authorization from this person. Or we should actually not have to wait, but this is this situation, so I don't think we need to do anything. And so there was all that analysis paralysis instead of somebody saying, you know what, training says if there's an active shooter, the first thing you do is you locate the threat and then you eliminate the threat. That's what we need to be doing. Let's go. And there was just none of that through any of the various police officers or agencies. And then we saw that when they finally did go in, new people showed up and immediately said, we're going in. Yeah. What are you doing? Let's go. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Brad. Exactly. Well, let me just, if I could just mention one other thing, Dave, just kind of in closing. I was taking notes as I was looking through this report. And uh, and this is my analysis. I didn't read this anywhere, but this is my takeaway. Six points for a situation like this. Act quickly. Communicate accurately. Follow policies and procedures, lead effectively, train repeatedly, and investigate thoroughly. And that is my personal takeaway from this situation. And all of those, except for the investigate thoroughly, those first five points, they simply drop the ball on those. And I think that's what we collectively as a country can take away from that is those six points to try to make sure that that, that a tragedy like this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And the one that stands out to me on your list, Brad, is lead effectively, because even after everything was done, uh, they were still pointing fingers at each other. And I wasn't in charge. You were in charge. No, Larry was in charge. No, Gus was in charge. Like someone needed to step up and say, I'm in charge. And here's what we're going to do or not do. 
Exactly. And no one did that either at the time or following the event. Uh, and uh, and to me, that's that, that's just a staple of bureaucracies that nobody wants to do anything. Nobody wants to be held accountable for anything. But you know what? As you talk to any of the first responders that you know, I know tons of first responders, you know, their attitude is we need to act and we need to keep people safe and we need to eliminate a threat. That's the viewpoint of most first responders. But unfortunately, it wasn't the case there in Uvalde. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it. My pleasure. On the other side of things, and in a much, it's not dumb because just because I saw it on TikTok, but I get so many videos on TikTok of, I'm going to say normies, like non-criminals resisting arrest and screaming, you can't touch me, you're not allowed to touch me when they're being arrested for shoplifting or something. Uh, I'm a sovereign citizen. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. And then resisting, or here's the thing about resisting arrest, uh, and I've never served a day in uniform, but my intuition would be, if I were a police officer, of course there are escalating you know, levels. There's a difference between not letting me cuff you and grabbing my gun. Right. But once someone doesn't let me cuff them, oh boy, is it on. And I'm not saying like you're getting your ass kicked. I'm just saying that that you see these videos and you see them escalate from simple, uh, I'm not going to let you cuff me, you can't touch me, to running away, to getting in their car and running over other cars and other people and I don't know. I just, in this case, obviously, a whole lot of cops have a whole lot of regrets. But every day, day in and day out, man, is that a hard job? You know, I think I think that's the that's the point that shouldn't have to be said, but people like to generalize too much. Those particular people can be criticized without criticizing the entire profession, and that's true in the military. That's true in the media. It's true in law, right? And, and I think that's become, that's become one of the problems that we've run into with a lot of these types of things is the criticism of one small group of people becomes the criticism of the larger group. We can criticize people who do their job poorly. Who And, and by the way, I, I won't be as nice as Brad. Those guys held up in Uvalde because they were scared. And they admitted it. They admitted it. They I mean, they you could hear in the recordings, oh, man, he's got a rifle. Oh, no. And they came out after, like, well, it would be dangerous to go in. No kidding. It's dangerous for the kids in there, too. At least you've got something, including training. So, yeah, fear is a part of that, and that's understandable, which makes the guys that do it right that much more awesome. Right? The ones that do charge into where there's a shooter. Right? The ones that do end up trying to take on the hard job. Which, in the defense of police officers... Is every other situation I've ever seen? <laughs> yeah, you. I mean, uh, uh, the guy in uh, Florida that was prosecuted and found not guilty, right? Stoneman Douglas. Yes. Yeah. Uh, other than those two, it seems like every time the police, you would have to say, did their job as well as they could. I mean, yes. And again, not it's not a hundred percent. Nobody's saying that, but in the, I mean, the the big popular example is all those guys running into the buildings on nine eleven, right? I mean, like you knew bad things were going on. The first responders ran towards it and went into it. And we know that that's, I mean, you have to be terrified. You have to be feeling something, some doubt. That's totally normal. Uh, But when you don't do it, obviously you're not doing the job you signed up for. Yeah. Yeah.
423 DGS. Uh, Stairway to Kevin. All right, let's do a little bit that's related to sports, but it was what was happening on Capitol Hill today. So you guys know the name, image, and license stuff in college. And essentially it means that college athletes can make money from endorsements. It, it, a lot of it's run through collectives that the school that are run by alumni or run by the school or people tied to the school in some way. But the school is not paying players. The players are being paid by companies that want to attach their names to those players, right? So Congress is investigating this for some reason, and I have no idea why, um, because we live in a free market society, right? Like you're able to get what you can get paid to do the job that you do. And there are no restrictions on that in the regular world, but we want to restrict that in the college sports world. And it was interesting because I'm listening to questions today and I'm reading some of the quotes from some of the various representatives out there. So a representative from Jordan named Rick Allen said, we have to get college football back to some kind of normalcy. What do you mean back to the point where nobody involved in generating the money gets paid any of the money? Like just because something existed before doesn't mean it's the way that it should continue to exist. Right? I mean, baseball didn't used to be integrated. (laughs) That doesn't mean it was quote normal before. It just means they were wrong before and it got corrected. Um, but this was, there were some more interesting things about this. And there was one from, um, there's a kid who's a quarterback for UCLA who was asked to testify. And he was asked by one of the representatives, what do college athletes distrust the most about this process? And his answer was Congress, Hmm. which was beautiful and brilliant. I, I give that kid a lot of credit for speaking truth to power, but also being smart because in what industry do we ask Congress to come in and set a pay structure? I mean, do, do we do that in, in any private industry? We're not talking about federal employees. We're not talking about, you know, Congress people themselves. What do you think it is? What do you think they're doing? Well, they're doing favors for people that give them money. I mean, people that are old money don't want the, the changes. They don't like the changes. They lose control. The control of college sports has always been with a very small number of people. And that number is growing larger because the players have more control than ever. They can transfer now. In fact, today, this is another thing I wanted to tie into it. The Department of Justice backed, um, I think it's the attorneys general of 10 different states that are saying the NCAA cannot limit transfers at all. If a player wants to transfer every year, he can transfer every year without any penalty. You can't penalize people for pursuing their life goals. I mean, I think all of us would kind of look at it that way, right? And why, and the question I ask about this is why should the players be bound to a commitment they make when they're 16, 17, 18 years old, but coaches aren't bound to the same commitment? And I don't just mean coaches leaving for other jobs. Have coaches you, can send players off and cut them anytime they want. Always felt this way? Oh, yeah, yeah. So going all the way back, you felt like the, the college athletes were being taken advantage of. I mean, of. I saw it firsthand. I mean, I walked through, I was lucky in that I had a family that was stable enough to make sure that I had money if I needed it. I had teammates that did not have that. I mean, I, 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 it's insane, but I mean, I saw, I saw players in college, guys, my teammates, taking out bank loans on the idea that they were going to get paid as professionals somewhere down the road, and they never did. Mm. But they didn't have any money. They couldn't buy clothes for themselves. 
Um, you know, we, we would sit through meanwhile, these. Meanwhile, the college was making money off of them. Meanwhile, the universities, yes, the coaches are making millions. In other smaller sports, they're making hundreds of thousands. And, you know, there are all kinds of athletic department administrators who have careers that wouldn't exist if not for the work of those people. And, and I think that the idea that I have is I think it's pretty simple, right? We all agree that we operate in a free market. There are rules, and that's fine. We can have rules. But the rules that we have in professional sports for what players can and can't get paid are collectively bargained. Those unions bargain with the leagues, and the leagues and the unions agree on a pay structure or salary caps or whatever structure you're going to do. The government is not a part of that. Why should the government be a part of determining whether or not college athletes can transfer or get paid I mean, if the if the schools want to get together and collectively bargain with players and come up with something, all right. I mean, we can all listen to that. I mean, that that's a reasonable thing that happens in businesses all over the place. But I find this is what I wanted to ask you guys about, and this will be the quick part. Why do we always feel like the way we were used to it was mm-hmm. the better way? No, that's not the quick part. That's a whole show. Right. Because I tend to be quite nostalgic. Everyone knows that. I love talking about mini bikes and 10 speeds and things like that. But I also, I don't have that thing where it's like, well, the way we did it in the 70s, that's the way to do it. Because a lot of things we did in the 70s were clearly not the way to do things. Right. 439 TGS and KMOX. So on the breaks, we like to talk a little light physics and existentialism. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, anyone who knows me knows that I should have been a philosophy professor and just wax philosophic with 18-year-olds. And, you know, Uh, so I was doing that with these guys. And I was watching something last night with uh, one of my favorite physicists. And uh, (laughs) you have a favorite physicist. I've got to talk. I I guess mine's probably uh, Michio Kaku. I like him. Uh, So this guy was talking about how much he hates the multiverse theory, but that's what the mathematics tells him is true. And, you know, the multiverse, of course, that anything that can happen will happen. And for you to exist in this specific universe means there's an infinite number of these things going on. And I had the thought, uh, we've all experienced deja vu. What if deja vu is simply two or more of yourselves experiencing the same thing at the same time? Or... Uh, Kevin Wheeler lived through this moment uh, before and you're somehow tapped into that just like the membrane is very thin every now and then in our life and it just kind of pops through. That seems to make sense. At least it's fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I Mm -hmm. mean, all of it is going to make your head spin because even the smartest people in the world that understand the math don't really know, right? I mean, because we don't experience those things. Um I mean, like the the idea of uh, you know the quantum physics and that two things exist in two places at once yeah. would lead to maybe what you're talking about with deja vu, right? I mean, we know about quantum entanglement. We know that there that the same thing can be in two places at one time, although it's not really at a level of a human body or whatever. But we, I mean, we've observed it. I mean, it's been observed in a lab. So why it why couldn't a thought or a memory or an ex, an experience have that same property. I don't know. Maybe there's a scientific explanation that would be like, well, Wheeler, you're an idiot if you don't know that. We were talking about <clears throat> perception, and uh, it's just a fact that we discount afterlife, discount multiverses, discount aliens, discount ghosts, discount it all, that we see things differently than a raccoon does. Yeah. 
and we hear we, differently than a dog. Exactly. Yeah. And we have one of the most limited ranges. So there is uh, we're we're, see, we're seeing maybe one percent of what's out there and our perception and, and what we hear and what we see. There are things it, it, this blew me away too. the whole like if a tree falls in the forest, is there any sound? And I always thought, yes, but it seems that science has said, no, 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 unequivocally, there is none. That's a perception in a brain based on a, an eardrum. So if there's no one there to perceive it, there would be no sound because sound is something experienced by a living thing. That kind of stuff pisses me off because if you just put a microphone yeah, out in the forest. Mad. Well, I mean, if you put a microphone out in the forest and it records it. But the microphone is sensing it. Right, but it's not. So it's not, not just a living thing. No, I understand. I'm but wrong it mean, about that. But it still means it's happening. Yeah, well, the tree fell. Right. And it created sound it's waves. It's moving airwaves. It's moving. I mean, it's moving yes. air. We know that. So that's the same thing. I think we're just, we're like trying to, we're trying to, oh, what's the right word? We're, we're, we're nitpicking. Because it's doing the things that create the sound. Therefore, it is creating a sound. Well, they were saying, for example, an apple's not red. Right. Just, it's how we see it. It's how we see it. And similar oh, to that. Don't say that. Yeah, I mean, like there are particles that are, there are particles moving through us right now. We can't perceive it. We can't feel it. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We have no idea it's happening. Guess but it's, it's happening. You guys are scaring me a little bit. Right. I mean, but it, that, we and know you that. ate a napkin yesterday. And I, are, ate a, and I ate a napkin. I mean, there are things on the spectrum. How did spectrum. that go last night, by the way? Not great. Uh, I, I I ended up taking care of some of it. I, I don't know if I necessarily had to, but I felt like I had to, and I wasn't going to feel normal until I... Why are you looking at me like that, Kevin? I didn't understand what you meant. I threw up. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it just, felt, it just felt like there was something wrong in there, and it just felt like I got to get, get rid of this. Hmm. Rach texted me last night. I got the level uh, four out of five. Yeah. And she got a level one or two. And mine was a whole bunch of nothing. Yeah. And hers was hot. Yeah. And, I think and you she got the texted me one. last night about 8 p.m. She goes, uh, based on past events, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I got the four here. We now have proof of the theory. <laughs> That's the science we can all agree on. You want to do a couple stories? Yeah. Speaking of Rach, of who's not here to do headlines? Uh, headlines is brought to you by what, Kevin? Schnooks. Oh, it's Schnooks. All right. Schnooks. Thank you, guys. I can't I can't say it. Uh, oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not allowed. Good. Union rules. Above his pay grade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Literally. Uh, uh, so this uh, woman in Rhode Island is filing a lawsuit against Panera Bread saying that the highly caffeinated charged Are lemonades. You drinking one right now? Of yeah. which I'm holding in my hand. Oh, drinking at least right it looks like he's been nursing that one all day. Caused her to have permanent <laughs> cardiac uh, injuries. Are you addicted? Yeah, I might be. You just took a drink of the very thing that caused this woman <laughs> permanent heart damage. Yeah. Like While doing a story. While doing you just story. don't believe in God. Do they say, like, she's saying that that <laughs> caused the heart damage. Do we know that it, the, that there was no damage before? Do we know that this is the only thing that changed? There's the she control. And then how Lauren, much did she drink? Lauren Scarrett. Uh, claims that she was an athlete with no underlying health conditions, but now requires daily medication and has heart problems that have reduced her ability to work, exercise, and yeah. socialize. She drank two and a half charged lemonade drinks and then started to feel like palpitations. Now, wait, two and a half at one, just one time? Yeah, this uh, the I think the implication. So 
this is something that we've seen a couple times with the people who have problems with these. I'm a member of the club, right? I go through and I get my free drink and then I go to work or whatever. And I, and I drink this uh, at varying levels of speed. But what we've seen consistently from the people that have had the problems with it are when you like, you're going to Panera Bread to like write or work or something and you're there all day and you're just going, oh, my drink's gone. I'm going to go refill it. And I think that's where the problem lies, where you have in one afternoon, you're drinking like three yeah. of these things, which is about yeah. 12 or so Red Bulls. Yeah. So how is that caffeine. the uh, company's fault? I can answer that. So I don't have much sympathy for Panera Bread. Uh, if you are serving something that two or three of them, whether it's a muffin or a drink, could hurt you physically... I think you need to do more than just call it charged lemonade. But they have the caffeine amount listed. Yeah. Well, you See, have to assume people are stupid. You also, have to assume that I mean, they're not reading also, labels. I would also assume that issue. an athlete who has been competitive would be more conscious of what they're putting into their body. This has been part of the issue, um, Dr. Contrarian. Uh, uh, no, return just, to your lair. Sorry, it's the contrarian. Excuse me. You didn't go to evil. <laughs> you didn't go to evil medical school at all. Uh, so part of the issue is that it, it 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 advertised that they're caffeinated, but it did not really. A lot of people think that they didn't really explain very. So they said that it has as much caffeine as our dark roast coffee. I I'm not I'm not casting any allegations here, but I don't I believe that there's more caffeine in this than in a dark roast coffee. Yeah, I think the normal person could have three coffees, mm -hmm. and they might be jittery, but they're yeah. not going to have heart damage. Yeah, the implication is that this has as much caffeine as if you drank a cup of coffee. Um, now, perhaps that's because this is 32 ounces, and most people don't drink 32 ounces worth of coffee in a day. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is, I mean, this so like is... that right there is four cups of coffee. Exactly. So if people drink four cups of coffee while they're sitting there all day, wouldn't they be at the same risk? And then why is, I mean, like, you no, know, you're, that, the, you're the one here no, choosing. No, it's if you drink to 12. It'd be drinking 10 cups. Of, if you drink two and a half of these, it'd be drinking 10 no, cups No, no, what of I'm coffee. saying is that right there is four cups of coffee. Yeah. Right. And I drink this right. and it's fine. So, but, <laughs> but if I had two more of these. Everybody on earth knows that if you drink too much caffeine, you can cause yourself heart problems. Everybody knows that. And, uh, I mean, but how I do you not? I don't and, know. And that if that's you true. don't know that, how is? I mean, like, it's legitimately called charged lemonade. That doesn't. But that that means nothing. Charged lemonade doesn't mean anything. A charged thing doesn't mean it has caffeine. If someone I'll, serves I'll you a charged advertising sandwich, it, that it doesn't way. mean that's it has the charged. Whole point you're uh, you're giving your fellow man too much credit. I, well, you know, like I, I think we should have some common sense. I mean, the, a long time ago, I think it was Schwinn was sued by a guy who said, you don't have a sticker on your bike that says it's dangerous to ride at night. And he sued them. I know. And I used to won. do this. Like, how do we not have the, 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 the ability to say, you should know at least a little something about what you're putting in your body? Man, he should have been a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs>